Again, if you would, uh, take out your Bible. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking today at verses 1 through 10. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay close attention to the reading of it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Eternal God, who spoke in various times and in various ways and past times, but who has in these last days spoken through your Son, the Word which has come in the flesh, we pray that you would be with this, your servant, that the words of his lips would be to proclaim your Word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray as well that that same Spirit would open the hearts of those gathered here, that they may hear and receive your gospel, that your word may be written on our hearts, that your truth may permeate our souls. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There is an old saying... There are two things guaranteed in life, you've heard this before, death and taxes. Death has been the experience of every human since the fall. No one escapes this life. No one has found the loophole which allows them to avoid death. Certainly a man cannot bring himself back to life. Imagine a man in the hospital who flatlines. How does he come back to life? Will he administer drugs to himself? Will he shock his own heart to get started? How will he save his own life? Imagine another man dead at the bottom of the ocean. Does he reach up and grab for a life preserver? What can a dead man do? 
Well, the answer, of course, is nothing. When a person dies, he or she is dead. We know this to be true in the physical world, and Paul applies this same concept to the spiritual world. When it comes to salvation, those who are outside of Christ are spiritually dead. And in writing to the Ephesian church, Paul says that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. But they have been made alive in Christ, having been saved by grace through faith. And so, just as dead men cannot make themselves to live, so too is it that spiritually dead men cannot make themselves spiritually alive. Now, thinking back over the past several weeks, we may recall that Paul has, at the end of chapter 1, just explained the stupendous power which is at work toward those who believe. The same power which saves sinners is the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul is thankful for the faith which the Ephesians have exhibited in Christ, and it reminds them of the great inheritance which is theirs in glory as they come under the headship of their Savior, namely Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does here is draw a contrast. He draws a contrast between the spiritual state of the Christian before their conversion, that is, when they were in unbelief, and the spiritual state into which they have been introduced after conversion by the grace of God. Now the first three verses rehearses the state of natural man. Previous to God's grace and mercy being poured out upon them, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Before they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, again the same Spirit which had raised Jesus from the dead, before they had come to repentance and faith, which is conversion, the Ephesian believers were in the natural state which is shared by all people. That is, that they were spiritually dead. They were in a state of sin and misery, lost and without hope. You see, all of mankind, by their fall in Adam into sin, lost communion with God, have come under His wrath and curse, and are so made liable to all of miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 19 reminds us. Those who are lost in their trespasses then are subject to the flesh, to Satan, the world, as they walk according to the norms of our present age, to the corruption of the flesh. In short, Paul reminds the Ephesians, and of course he's reminding us as well as the church of Jesus Christ, he reminds them that they were in a state of condemnation. They were subject to the wrath of God. This is the place 
that you and I would be as well were it not for the wonderful grace of God. This is the state that all unbelievers are at this moment, even now. Those who are, were subject to unbelief live according to the world, which is characterized by the prevailing winds of our time. And the prevailing winds and the prevailing worldview of our own day is a commitment to self and a rejection of the supernatural. That is what our world embraces. We see this in our own day playing out in the variety of sexual sins where homosexuality and transgender identities, which are, by the way, a perversion of the natural order of things, where these things are being celebrated and raised up as good and right. People are today identifying themselves with their sins. This can only come about because of an overemphasis on the self. What the unbeliever doesn't realize is that they are not achieving some kind of self-actualization or their true selves, their true identity, but are in fact following what the Apostle Paul calls the prince of the power of the air. That is to say, of course, Satan. And they follow after the Spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Spirit at work in the sons of disobedience is the ruling principle at work in sinners, which is simply, we would call, the depravity of man. Because of our sin nature, man is incapable of doing good and so lives according to the spirit of the age. Now we know what the spirit of our age is. The spirit, but the spirit of the age changes. It changes its focus at various times and seasons, but it is always living wickedly and in rebellion against the holy God. That's what at the root of it, whatever it is. Now, before we too quickly begin pointing fingers at the disorderliness of the unbeliever, we need to understand that humans, human beings are born in sin and are by nature sinners. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, outside of Christ, you and I lack any kind of righteousness within ourselves. We have no righteousness of our own. But we need righteousness we have is what we would call an alien righteousness, that is, the righteousness of Christ. In describing the wicked, those who are living according to the ways of the world, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 29, this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient, to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What a list that Paul gives in Romans. 
It's really almost depressing. This is a description of those who walk according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power in the air. This is the idea of depravity, the depravity of man. But the depravity of man is not unique to Paul's writings. Listen to the description from the Old Testament, Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The sinner is subject to sin, subject to Satan, on the path to destruction and ruin, and living as all the world lives, as slaves to sin and disobedience and rebellion to the Creator. This is where sinful man ends up outside of Christ. This is where all of us would be outside of Christ, left to ourselves. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that the unbeliever is as wicked as they could be. Sometimes we think the world, you know, is just just as bad as it ever could be. Well, it actually could be much worse. Paul's not saying that the wicked is as bad as they could be. There is common grace, which puts some limits on man's depravity. But what he is saying is that those who are outside of Christ are subject to the philosophies and worldviews of the world, and that philosophy is an evil philosophy. And so the people of Ephesus, for whom Paul is writing this letter, had at one time been like any other unbeliever. Under the influence of an evil spirit, being disordered, wicked, and deceived. And their previous state was not unique to them. As he points out in verse 3, when he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You see, we don't get to point fingers, do we? No one can say, well, it's those people over there. They're the sinners. But not me. No, no. Nobody gets to say that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All live according to the passions of our flesh. We come into this world with a sin nature. The fallen human condition is a condition shared by every human being on this planet, including you and me. It is not unique to any particular group of people. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, are by their nature in the same state. There is no us and them in that sense. All who are outside of union with Christ would be lost Depraved sinners subject to the ways of the world. And so really we can say it this way. There are two categories of people. There are sinners who are lost. And then there are sinners who are saved by the marvelous grace and mercy of our Savior Jesus Christ. Even members of the church, the covenant community, have sought our own passions and desires. Have we not? Do we not come and confess our sin each Lord's Day? Hopefully you confess your sin throughout the week. This is why Paul says, We, we all have carried out the sinful desires 
of our body and mind. Beloved, the Christian is not immune to sinful desires and passions. And so by nature, human beings are children of wrath. All are born with a sin nature. This is what Paul means when he says, by nature, children of wrath. This is also what David means when he writes in Psalm 51, 5, as he confesses his sin before the Lord. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, I have inherited a sin nature passed down by ordinary generation from our first father, Adam. And because this is true, it's true that we are all sinners. We're born in sin. We're born as objects of God's wrath outside of God's saving grace in Christ. Without Jesus Christ, all would be under the displeasure of God and subject to destruction. Walking according to the principles of sin and subject to death. Living out the passions of our own hearts being children of wrath like every other man. This beloved congregation of Covenant Reformed Church is the bad news. In order to understand more fully the greatness of God's love, we need to see how bad our state has been and would, would be. See, the sober reality and the depressing realization that we are wretched sinners stands in contrast to what comes next and is introduced with these most glorious and most wondrous words, but God. Despite our sin... Despite our rebellion, our our cosmic treason against the Holy God, and not because of anything within us, because God is rich in love and mercy. He has made us alive in Christ. God shows forth His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So having to describe the natural state of man, lost, dead, without hope, the Apostle Paul then declares the manner by which people are delivered from this dreadful condition. We are made alive, truly alive. We are spiritually resurrected, as it were. And this change did not come about because of man, It doesn't come about because of us. God is the one who brings about this change. Mankind, again, remember, is by nature depraved God-haters. We're incapable of seeking after God. This deliverance from ruin came about because of the abundant love and mercy of our Savior. Out of His abundance... Out of the abundance of His love and mercy, God desires to bring comfort to the miserable and to the wretched. God's love for His chosen people is great. But it's not simply that God felt sorry for us as miserable objects in need of salvation. Any pity God has towards us is rooted first in His love. God had determined by the counsel of His own will before the creation of the world to bring about our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
His love displayed towards us then is objective and unconditional. It is objective because it is not based on us. That would be subjective. God is very purposeful in the pouring out of His love based on the counsel of His own will. The redeemed sinner is an object of God's great love. And His love is unconditional in that God did not look first to the sinner to pass some sort of test. It's not the case that God chose those who would choose Him first. In fact, it is the other way around. 1 John 4 tells us that we love God because He first loved us. God is so willed to love us, and therefore that love is objective and unconditional. There are no preconditions needed in order for God to decide to pour out His affections. He did so because He wanted to. And beloved, aren't you glad that this is the case? It pleased God to save Please, God, to save you and I. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together in Christ. Now notice that Paul repeats where he started in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that is then explained in verses 2 and 3, which we've gone over. Even though you were dead... Because of God's love, because of God's mercy to rescue lost sinners, you have been made alive in Christ. Beloved, this is the great comfort of the gospel. God has done for you and for me that which you and I are totally incapable of doing for ourselves. He has quickened our spirits. He has raised the spiritually dead to new life. This idea of making alive expresses what is included in salvation. The death that the Christian is delivered from includes condemnation, spiritual pollution, and misery. And the life which we are given includes forgiveness of sin, regeneration, and blessed joy. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, the Christian does not deserve that salvation. Nor can we redeem ourselves. It is the graciousness of God by which men are saved. We receive it, as it were, as a free gift in empty hands. Verse 6, as he saves us, He has raised us with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This is awesome. When we're saved, we are then made partakers of the life of Christ. We are raised up. We are enthroned with Him in heaven. We are reunited to Him. Remember the spiritual blessings that we had seen in in chapter 1. The spiritual blessings from the heavenly places. 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. In our salvation, we are not only rescued from the pit of despair, but we are then seated with the King in a seat of honor. We are raised up from the garbage heap, if you will, to the glory and honor of sonship. Just as God takes the poor from the dust and lifts the the needy from the ash heap to sit with princes, so it is that He takes the spiritually low and He raises them up with Him. Just as Christ, who rested in the grave after death, was raised again on the third day, ascended into heaven. And so it is that the Christian who is saved, looking forward to the fullness of the kingdom, looking forward to the resurrection of their own bodies, and they are honored as he is a full inheritor of the kingdom of God. We talked about this last week, about the inheritance that is ours. This is what Paul's talking about. He doesn't just rescue wayward and rebellious sinners and says, well, here, you can be just over here in the corner. No, he raises, he says, you're a son and an heir of all the promises. It's incredible what God does. But think about this for a bit. Just stop and just for a moment and think about this, this glorious truth. The followers of Jesus are made full citizens of heaven. Inheritors of the kingdom. Active rebels against the king who were lost and in bondage to sin were snatched from the pit and raised to sit at the table of the king to sup with him in glory. This is truly amazing, beloved. And why has he done this? Why? Why from all eternity has God chosen us to be holy before Him in love? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is phenomenal. The love and mercy and grace of God being poured out on men is an exhibition to the watching world, to all of creation, of the immeasurable riches of God's glorious grace. God's love and grace is put on full display for all to see. All future generations of the world from every nation in every age, from age to age to come, will see the glory and majesty and love and grace and mercy of the King of Kings. It's truly glorious. God has been and will continue to show to His children the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Eternally. You see, the attributes of God are on, are on and will be on full display forever in the salvation of His people. This is His purpose. That's why we talk about salvation ultimately really being about the glory of God. And this incredible, marvelous salvation, which is ours, which includes being lifted up and honored, is by grace through faith. 
It is by the graciousness of God. You and I do nothing to earn our own salvation. We cannot save ourselves. It is not our own doing. It is a gift from God. Paul says it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. How much work can a dead man do anyway? Now this does not mean that salvation is... What this means is that salvation is not by works. When Paul says that we are saved by, not by works, he is saying not by our own works. Not by the works of the law. Not by the ceremonial works. Not by any good works that we do. But we are saved by a work. That is for sure. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ alone. He did the work. This is a gift to us. It is not a result of anything you and I A person can give to the poor. A person can help the needy, perform all sorts of evangelical graces, offer sacrifices, perform various ceremonies, come to church regularly, pray certain prayers continually, and on and on and on. We can list them out. And not one of those things will earn one bit of heaven. We cannot buy our way into heaven by work or by money, by time or talents. There is literally nothing that you and I can do to move ourselves even one inch closer to the kingdom. It is Christ and Christ alone who has earned your salvation. Salvation is in no sense and in no degree of our own work because salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ and not of works. And this is the case, the Bible tells us, so that no one can boast. We can't just say, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I've got it all figured out. See, that's why I'm, you know, I'm smarter than everybody else. We don't get to say that. Sometimes we want to, don't we? In fact, in our weak moments, isn't that exactly what we do? I mean, I kind of got this figured out and, you know, you should too. It's by grace, beloved. No one can boast. We don't get to boast in ourselves. We cannot boast in a salvation because we are not capable of having brought it about. We do not do the work. It would be a little bit like if I were to go into my children's rooms and and clean them. And then my children said to their mother, See what a good job I did cleaning? Well, they wouldn't have anything to boast in. They didn't didn't do anything. In case of salvation, we can't do the work. Paul argues elsewhere in Romans 4, 2, that not even Abraham, the father of the nation, could boast in his own salvation. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So not even Abraham, this great patriarch of the Jewish people, not even he could stand before a holy God and boast in justifying himself. And if not him, if not the patriarchs, then what makes anyone else think that they can? And that's the point. You and I cannot boast in any work which is not our own. That salvation is entirely the work of God 
and that our own worth cannot be the ground of acceptance before him. And it's proven in verse 10 when it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Who made you? Well, God did. God created you and me. And God, by His Spirit, regenerates you and me. You and I, if you're a Christian, are His handiwork. Your life, both physical and spiritual, is from God. He formed you and He saves you. Understand, it's not even that God simply made salvation possible, as some of our fellow Christian friends tend to say. God didn't just open the door for us. He didn't throw out a life preserver. He didn't put the medicine on the table. If you just would inject yourself, you'd be saved. It's not like that. All of salvation, the entire thing, from beginning to end, is the work of a holy, righteous, good, gracious, and merciful God. If you're a Christian, you're God's handiwork. He did the work. Our salvation is His work. We were created in Christ Jesus, though, for good works. So there are good works that we do, but even those were brought about in Christ. Any man or woman who is in Christ is a new creature in Him. Union with Christ is our source of new life. A new life of holiness and righteousness. Therefore, in Christ we are created, or if you will, recreated for good works. To do good. Because this is a purpose to give glory to God. God had prepared us beforehand to walk in newness of life and holiness before Him. We were preordained, as it were, appointed for this. Before the foundation of the world, God had determined to save some unto newness of life and make them holy and have them then walk in holiness. Because you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the ground of our justification, adoption, and sanctification are found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are taken from death to life by the grace of God in Christ. And you are His handiwork, His masterpiece. And He did this so that you would be a new creature, holy and full of good works. You know, it's said about a prisoner who's on death row, waiting execution, that he is a dead man walking. There's a sense that all human beings are dead men walking, right? Life is a vapor. It's a mist. It goes so quickly. And the reality is, say that the Lord Jesus returns in our lifetime, every single person in this room is going to die. At some point, you will die. But there is a second death as well, which requires a supernatural rebirth. 
what we are talking about are those who are spiritually dead. They are dead because of sin. They are hostile towards God. Walking according to the ways of this present dark world. But God, out of his own good pleasure, had determined to rescue his wayward children. To take them out of a state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. Beloved, if you are trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, you have gone from death to life, from darkness to light. You have been moved from the city of destruction, to use John Bunyan's analogy, and are now on the path to the celestial city. But this is the great hope of the Christian. This is where we rest. Isn't that really point. There are many who live in the darkness of sin and blindly grope, groping around for some sense of truth, but are they really finding it? In most cases, what people seem to do is to create a God after their own image. They ignore general revelation, especially special revelation of the Word, and they seek to make their own truth. This is the spirit of our own age, isn't it? And left to ourselves, you and I would be this way too, but for the grace of God. Isn't that glorious, but God? Even when you were dead, God made you alive in Christ. And this is the free gift from God. It is completely of grace. And beloved, aren't you glad? In this you can rest. You can rest in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Rest in Him. Take joy in Him. For He is gracious. He is good. He has rescued you and me from the pit. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty and most gracious and merciful God, we ask that You would grant that Your Word, which we have heard, may be inscribed on our hearts. May we grow in our true affections for you. May our hearts be filled with love and reverence and joy for the grace which you have poured out so abundantly through Jesus Christ. For you are a God who saves indeed. We thank you for your abounding grace. And may we live as those who are your workmanship, your masterpiece, doing that which is pleasing before you, serving your people to your glory. May we rest in our Savior, who is the good shepherd of the sheep. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.